It's Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The writer's strike, important. I think it's going to get a lot of coverage. I'm not going to cover it here. What I can do and vow to you, the listener of The Gist, is not cover a bunch of news that is news that's deserving of coverage that you can read and see about in a lot of other places that I might not be able to add to. For instance, the Writers Guild of America, which is striking, they cover MSNBC, NBC, CBS. I don't mean cover like they talk about it. Those people are members of the Guild. They will get plenty of coverage. This will not go without being noted. Now, I'm here to backstop any news that falls through the cracks, but on this one, I think we're good. Similarly, debt ceiling. Debts are important. Ceilings are important. The debt ceiling is stupid. To quote Ben Wittes, I have nothing useful or new to say on the merits of the debt limit crisis. That's in part because the merits are so simple as to be uninteresting. A default would be catastrophic. Indeed, it will. Or would. It's not going to happen. I don't think so. If it does, I'll definitely cover it. I, Mike, Mike here, no longer quoting Ben. He'll be on the show soon. I've talked about debt. The debt, it's pretty big, isn't it? We should address the debt. Surprisingly controversial opinion. And I will cover any spending proposals that come down the pike. That's the thing about the debt ceiling crisis. If you're worried about the debt ceiling, then you could not spend money. To not pay the debt seems exceedingly stupid. And indeed it is. We're going to check in when it ends. You're not going to get daily debt ceiling updates from me. It's a little like um, if I covered the last season of Lost, I wonder if they'll pull it off. I wonder if they'll explain it and then they don't explain it. You'll feel a little burnt along the way. What will I cover? Well, this goes back to a very foundational subject on the gist, the death of Gordon Lightfoot. Question one, is that his real name? Canadian songwriter and singer Gordon Lightfoot? It is. Gordon Meredith Lightfoot. C-C-O-N-T. That's what Wikipedia says. C-C-O-N-T. I don't want to pronounce that word out loud. I might get fired from Fox. No, it stands for Order of Canada. That's C-C somehow. And Order of Ontario. Like a night ship up there. It's a very high honor since Canadians prize order. It's kind of the highest prize there is. Now, The importance of Gordon Lightfoot to the gist is based on his song, one of the best songs ever, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I remember early on as I was doing this program, I had had some shtick. I had a bit that for years I had been regaling and probably, I'm not going to say less than delighting my friends with, which is that every song can be sung to the tune of The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And I was wondering... Dare I lose this bit or loose this bit to the gist audience? And I forgot why, but the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was in the news. And it was like day 22 of ever doing the gist. It was June of 2014. I started the gist on May 5th, which is uh, coming up soon, of 2014. And I said to myself, just like three weeks into the show, do I possibly burn my classic wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald bit? But I went for it not being perfectly sure that I'd have enough material in the tank. Well, it turns out I had enough material in the tank. Almost nine years later. In fact, I have a surfeit of material. And if you're on the web, you can surf it and find many of these last 2,000 or so shows. Maybe what I should have been more worried about was how strong was the bit? Because when I sang it to friends, some would sing along and others would leave the room, never to speak to me again. So 
to demonstrate that you could sing The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. That you could sing this tune to any tune, I asked the staff of Peachfish Productions, hey, when's your birthday? My birthday's December 29th, 1971. The number one song was Melanie, brand new pair of roller skates, to the tune of The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Well, I got a brand new pair of roller skates. You got a brand new key. Michelle Pesca, song when she was born. Reunited and it feels so good. Reunited cause we understood. This works across genres. The number two song of all time, according to the rap magazine, The Source. To the bang, bang, boogie, say up, jump the boogie, to the rhythm of the boogie. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. Number one song of all time, according to Pitchfork, Smells Like Teen Spirit. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now, entertain us. Number one rap song of all time. Don't push me cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. And finally, recent song that's really excellent, though hasn't turned up on a number one of all time list, Lizzo. I just took a DNA test, turns out I'm a hundred percent that bitch. Edmund Fitzgerald, the legacy will live on, as will Gordon Lightfoot and the magic of a tune that could be applied anywhere throughout time and song. On the show today, ABC's coverage of black farmers and what's owed to them. But first, we continue our conversation with Megan Phelps Roper, host of the podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Today, we get into some of the pushback from the trans community over the podcast and try to answer the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? Hmm? Megan Phelps Roper, up next. Megan Phelps Roper is the host of the podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, a podcast that has been one of the most popular and most downloaded on Apple, iTunes, and as they say, wherever you get your podcast. Now, if you go to the reviews of the show, they will be dominated by five-star reviews. And a typical title is something like thought-provoking, deep and nuanced, intelligent, nuanced, and balanced. But every so often, perhaps more often than the producers would like, you get a one-star review. Brave and thought-provoking in what universe when J.K. Rowling says she's concerned about women, what she really means is she's concerned about white, wealthy, straight, and cisgendered women with no regards for the facts. Or another one-star review, misinformation. This podcast seriously cherry-picks what's going on to J.K. Rowling in order to make her seem much more like the victim. 
Well, to the podcast credit, the witch trials, they wanted to engage in the best arguments of their critics. So I started by asking Megan Phelps Roper how they went about assembling these best counter arguments. There was this really um, one of the people that I interviewed for the series, um, Natalie Wynn, who is the YouTuber ContraPoints, who makes these really amazing, elaborate videos. Um, well, she, she made one about our show. The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. All right, kids, it's trans in time. Last year, I agreed to be a guest on a podcast about J.K. Rowling, hosted by Megan Phelps Roper. I have only watched it once, and I'm uh, I'm going to go back and watch it a couple more times, I think. One of the things that she said that really stuck out to me was this line where she said she was talking about the um, famous homophobe, Anita Bryant. And she said, Anita Bryant didn't need to be persuaded. Anita Bryant needed to be defeated. Did Anita Bryant really deserve that pie to the face? Well, yes. Obviously. Look, the point I'm trying to make here is that it's possible to take genuine virtues like nuance, empathy, and impartiality and to twist them into fucked up apologia for horrible oppressive behavior. If you play this game long enough, you can essentially explain away the entire concept of bigotry and conclude that, in reality, there are no bigots. There's only tragically misunderstood people with difficult childhoods and valid concerns cruelly demonized by militant activists defaming and silencing them with such reputation-ruining slurs as homophobe. And I, I'm not saying that that is wrong, but I do have a question, which is, what does it mean to defeat Anita Bryant? And from my perspective, what it means is, is that we persuade people not to believe in her ideas, right? Like, so I, I don't think the example that um, Natalie kind of kept going back to was this moment where Anita was giving an interview on television and somebody came up and, you know, uh, smashed a banana cream pie in her face. And I don't think that is the thing that defeated Anita Bryant. I don't think that all of the, you know, critical things, you know, putting her face on toilet paper and, you know, parodying her slogans and making fun of her, um, like, maybe those things did contribute for sure. But from my perspective, defeating Anita Bryant means defeating her ideas, uh, particularly, so maybe not even in her, but in the people who found her, who made her popular, like, right, she was influential. In other words, it still comes down to persuasion, in my view. And, and the thing is, Natalie herself said that in our conversation, she said, I do believe in having the conversation. She said, um, realistically, that is how these rights are won. Um, we, t we were talking in that moment about same sex marriage and the fact that you know, I mean, it's only 15 years ago that Barack Obama was, you know, not, you know, he was a, he was ostensibly against same-sex marriage um, when he was running in 2008, and and so was Hillary Clinton, and so it's it's the act of um, the, having these conversations of like people, you know, gay people were coming out to their families and friends and having these conversations. You know, like we're we're not pedophiles. We're not trying to groom your children. We're not. We're just normal people, and we just happen to love people of the same sex. And like those conversations were the things that won the day, not the cream pie to the face. But yeah, Natalie doesn't talk about any of that in her videos. Like, she, in other words, I think she's attacking positions that I don't actually hold. In, in a lot of ways. 
The idea of defeating Anita Bryant, that example, um, I think there's some validity to it if the person to be defeated is, in fact, trying to erect a cult of personality. You know, maybe Donald Trump, certainly Duterte in the Philippines, if you can show that this person is whatever, a hypocrite or doesn't believe what they say or saying one thing, doing the other, that might have some effect because all that person believes in is, you know, himself or herself. With Anita Bryan, it was just the anti-gay agenda. J.K. Rowling is clearly not trying to erect a cult of personality. She is championing ideas. So in her case, it would seem that what you have to do, you know, I think you put your finger on it, is to defeat the idea. But my question is, how much does anathemizing the idea, making the idea the sort of thing that people are uncomfortable voicing uh, in mixed conversation. And maybe, you know, the best version of this to give voice to something that Natalie would say is something like, um, how much would making people realize that this is not a benign idea, but this is a horrible idea, and therefore you wouldn't want to give voice to it? How far does that go in defeating the idea? Is that an effective strategy? Well, again, I think if you are, it's not just anathemizing the idea. I think it is helping people actually, like, in other words, you're still persuading people, right? So you can't just say, like, I mean, it's, and maybe a parallel example is like, oh, that's racist, or that's misogynistic, but you never actually connect the dots to like how it's racist, or how it's misogynist, or, or how it's homophobic. Um, like, if we don't actually connect the dots, and like, if you're, you're you are, if you're not able to actually persuade people, then, in other words, you can try to make the thing unsayable. It's kind of like what Michelle Goldberg was saying at the end of episode four. Um, it's the effort to try to kind of force a consensus when it hasn't been reached organically. In other words, like just like we were saying with the same-sex marriage example, like it's it is, it's a sucky fact that we have to do this, right? Right. It might be it might be to use a common term, exhausting to have to mm-hmm. put in the work to keep explaining mm-hmm. to you time mm-hmm. and time again. But you are arguing for a significant change in society, and it the argument has to be made to in, in order to persuade people. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't again, you shouldn't make fun of people or you shouldn't I've never said that. I've just said, I don't think that's the most effective strategy. And I could be wrong, but that's fine. I mean, you you try your thing and I'll try my thing. And eventually, hopefully, you know, some some change will be made. Well, is what is even going on acts of persuasion? I think maybe J.K. Rowling is, maybe, maybe I'm giving her too much of the benefit of the doubt. She's playing one game and her opponents are playing another. I don't even mean to put contrapoints, Natalie, in that category, but seems like maybe J.K. Rowling was engaged in a discussion, a debate, a intellectual exercise wherein she was saying, here is a principle that I hold, which is the sanctity of women's only spaces. And if I were to pursue this and try to pursue it as faithfully as I can to and be very logical and consistent about it. Uh, Who would I be excluding from women's only spaces? People who I don't or shouldn't be considered women. And that's where the red flag goes up. So that's the game she's playing. The game many other people are playing, the good version of that is, you know, I have so much sympathy for trans people and they have so much um, in their way in our culture when there's someone who's presenting any kind of roadblock Uh, that's not useful to my project. But then there's another game that people are playing, which is just, you know, in-group, tearing down 
people in the out group trying to score points based on name calling and uh, derision. So you've made this, I think, a pretty good argument about how we can change minds. How many involved in this conversation really on any level care about changing minds? It's an excellent question. I obviously am not a mind reader. I mean, but I, I do think that obviously people on all sides of this have goals, right? They are trying to accomplish these goals. I think, like, I, th- I do agree with you that there are some people who are not actually trying to change minds. They're trying to essentially rally the troops, rally the people who are already on their side to try to affect change. And I think part of the problem is that the, both of the camps are are huge. Then they're using whatever whatever tools they have at their disposal to kind of force the other t- uh, the other side to submit, right? Um, and whether that's, I don't know, people on the right using the law um, or people on the left using kind of cultural power and corporate power to try to force people to submit on that side. Um, and so what you have is this, I, I think, an, a pretty untenable situation where in some places they're trying to either compel you to uh, affirm your child or you are forbidden from affirming your child, um, specifically in terms of like um, puberty blockers, hormones and surgery. Um, and so it's I think it's an untenable situation where you have some places where, in other words, there has to be a conversation, I think, um, or else we're going to end up in this place where both sides are just doubling down and either unable or, un- or, or unwilling to really engage with the criticisms from the other side. So part of this is the confusion. You even cop to this. You were a little confused about what the debate was. What is the thing that J.K. Rowling said or espouses that marks her as a transphobe? I mean, much of our conversation is, are you saying I shouldn't shun bigots? There's the assumption, okay, well, she's a bigot. So Megan, you believe very much in good faith arguments. Can you articulate the best version of the case against J.K. Rowling being a transphobe. I've looked hard into this. I think I know what it is, but what do you think the best case of someone who honestly believes she's a transphobe, how and why would we accurately call her a transphobe? Oh, (laughs) okay. So in episode six, you had both um, Natalie Wynn and uh, this wonderful... um, teenager named Noah, who is a a trans boy. Um, And both of them talk about how, essentially, it's not the text, but the subtext. Um, They think that the story that she is telling is dangerous, that the questions that she's asking, essentially, are, are assuming bad things about trans people. And, you know, as Noah put it, Rowling's story itself, where you know, she is trying to articulate these arguments and these concerns, um, you know, which Noah says, you know, she doesn't, it's not that she even needs to abandon her concerns. It's just that that story of of J.K. Rowling being attacked in this, you know, extreme way, um, you know, is, is dangerous because in that story, in her story, trans people are the bad guys. I mean, I think ContraPoints would also say, it's so funny to call her Natalie. Natalie would also say, um, you know, that that she is associated with a lot of people who hold um, positions that are, I mean, not just transphobic, but also um, that so people like Posey Parker. Um, not only not only is she, according, you know, in um, 
seen as transphobic. She's also seen as misogynist in some ways or anti-feminist in some ways. Um, and in, and in being associated with people like Posey Parker, you know, if, if Rowling doesn't explicitly disavow all of the things that she disagrees with, she is essentially endorsing those things, like winking at them, essentially. Right, because uh, Natalie says most bigots aren't stupid enough to flat out say, uh, Anita Bryant never said, I hate gays. And then she played a clip of Anita Bryant saying, I love gay people. Uh, David Duke never said, I hate black people. That's factually inaccurate. He didn't even use the word black people, but he's absolutely said that. So Natalie, Natalie's point is that Rowling, in fact, Natalie goes so far as to say, Rowling never calls out the rampant bigotry on her side. Therefore, she must agree with that. I don't know if that's even factually true, but that is, I think, I know it's Natalie's point. Right. I mean, and so obviously there are a lot of, I, I don't know exactly what J.K. Rowling would say in response to this. I can say, I mean, a, a lot of people just outright reject the idea of guilt by association. It's like it's the same reason why, you know, Muslims would say, I shouldn't have to disavow what happened on 9-11 because of course, of course, I'm not a terrorist. I shouldn't have to prove that I'm not a terrorist. Um, and Rowling would say, like, I, I shouldn't say Rowling would say, like, you know, I think it's the kind of thing that um, you can imagine someone thinking, like, I have spent my life fighting for women's rights and for these feminist positions that I hold, I am only responsible for myself and my positions. And if I were going to, what you know, so I, I could hear that kind of argument. Did you ask her the do you disavow question? You know, the Sunday show, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, member of your caucus, says X, Y, and Z. Do you disavow that? Answer is usually, well, Marjorie speaks for itself. No, but do you disavow it? Answer is, well, you know, I've always said, no, but do you disavow it? I don't know. Did you go through one of those with uh, J.K. Rowling and any of the uh, people who she's uh, supported, tweeted with, taken a picture with, and said some very nasty things? No, I mean, we, we talked for um, about nine hours, but we talked about a lot of things. Um, I, I just didn't get too much into like, I don't know, somebody on Twitter the other day was like, you talked to her for so long and you never talked about this, you know, Twitter conspiracy theory where all these gender critical people think that Twitter is taking away their likes. And I was like, we had a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> that didn't seem like the most present concern. Um, but yeah, no, we, we didn't actually, we didn't talk about um, Posey Parker do you think that's a strong point? The uh, On the one hand, guilt by association doesn't make you guilty. That's recognized under law. On the other hand, what about that? What about the fact that, I mean, maybe it's untrue, but it, there's plenty, there's lots of evidence that she has lots of associations with people who you can't really debate their transphobia. So it's, I mean, just personally, I guess, um, I'm just thinking out loud here because I, um, you know, when I first left Westboro. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that we talked about a lot at the church. My mom would would quote this passage about how can two walk together except they be agreed, and that was always you know told as a, or, or or quoted as a way of saying we can't you know maintain friendships or or close relationships with people outside of the church because we we fundamentally disagree about these really important issues, and when I left and, you know, started meeting people, it was such an amazing thing, a really liberating thing. And, you know, to, to be able to make friends 
with people who saw the world very differently than I did. Um, and, you know, I write about this in, in my book. Like, I, I encountered um, almost right away this couple um, who ran a bed and breakfast, an Airbnb that I stayed at. And um, and I remember, you know, that verse coming to mind. So they, they it turned out they were Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and, you know, even though I had by that point essentially entirely rejected um, the idea of God, um, and certainly had a lot of qualms about the Bible. Um, I was still amazed. Like, like we can still be really good friends and agree on a lot of things, and 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 also disagree about really fundamental things. And I can still maintain this relationship. And so that question from the verse, "Can two walk together except they be agreed?" It suddenly went from being a very obvious "of course not" to being a very obvious. Of course, and I mean, so one one of the things that you know, I I, I just rem- remember that that J.K. Rowling said in one of our conversations, she talked about having a friend of hers who is a, a very close friend who is a a practicing Catholic who doesn't believe in abortion, and she very strongly does believe in abortion. So I think she, I mean, just based on that, I would guess that she sees that she can have friendships and relationships with people even when they vehemently disagree on things overhanging the entire enterprise of this podcast was to me this question you used this phrase a couple times in our conversation good faith i think you're very into good faith arguments but let's say and i i guess some critics of the podcast have alleged that it's not really a good faith effort it's trying to give the appearance of a good faith effort so here is my question or challenge to you short of you just swearing up and down that it's really good faith are there parts of it elements to it um, anything that you could point to that might demonstrate it really is good faith and not just the appearance of good faith. If it was just the appearance of good faith, we would have done X, but instead we did Y, that sort of thing. Hmm. That's a good question. So, I mean, when you go through the episodes, um, so for instance, episode four, um, that was the first episode that we would really get into the you know conversation around sex and gender. Um all of the points that we make, you know, as we're trying to describe the conflict, because the show is really for a normie audience, right? It's not the whole, it's not that the entire thing is is just about sex and gender. Um, it's like the last half of the show is, is about that. So clearly in four episodes, there's not a chance in hell that we could have gone deep into all of the issues and all of the related issues because there is there is just so much implicated when you're talking about sex and gender. There are entire podcasts that go on and on and on, you know, other shows like ongoing conversations around sex and gender. Like there are, you know, obviously university courses um, and degrees that cover all the issues that we're trying to get at in a very, like, I mean, it's a relatively, you know, we're, we're trying to give a broad overview um, but obviously we're limited in what we can do um, in four episodes of the show. Um, in episode four, when we get into it, like if you, you can see, like we are going back and forth, like we are describing what the view is on one side and we are describing the views on the other side. Like I, I just, I guess I would say, I don't know. I don't know exactly like how, yeah, what, 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 what could we have done? Like, we wouldn't have included all those things. And, and well, did you try very hard to steel man arguments that uh, co- contradicted J.K. Rowling? Yeah, but I mean, like, very specifically, though, because you said, what could we have done differently to give the, like, in other words, how could I distinguish true good faith from the appearance of good faith? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, I guess, because I, I can tell you that 
we, as you said, like I can swear up and down that we were, you know, trying to do this in good faith. I interviewed a lot of trans people. I talked to trans people before, during, and and since, um, since we published. I mean, and I, yeah, I mean, I I really don't know. I, you have to. I think you would have to listen. People would have to listen to the show and maybe. Um, Tell me, like, what, what, what could we have done differently or what should we have done differently? Do you see any evidence that this has shaken the conversation a little bit um, beyond the parameters of the show? For instance, I know, I think it was HBO announced a huge deal they were going to make. They are going to make uh, a standalone series with every one of the books. I, you know, I, I wouldn't, the show is great. I don't know if that deal would have happened before or after, but maybe some of the reaction to that deal was influenced by what you put forward on the show. Do you have any way of knowing that? I don't. Um, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I do think that I feel a change. I mean, I think even, you know, again, like the kind of people who have reached out and even, you know, publicly about, like, I do think the conversation has been changing because like I said, I think people people want to have the conversation. And I think the, uh, many of the things that made it difficult is, again, just just um, how complex all of these issues are. And it just seems like more and more people are willing to open up about what they what they really think and, yeah, to really have the conversation. Megan Phelps Roper has worked with anti-bullying campaigns. She's worked with law enforcement investigating de-radicalization. Her memoir is called Unfollow, and she is a writer, host, and producer with the free press responsible for the new podcast, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Megan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. Yesterday, ABC News aired coverage of the issue of black farmers. They are suffering from a lack of federal aid and are said to be, per the framing of the story, forgotten. Rachel Scott takes a look at why black farmers aren't getting the help they need. We begin by meeting a farmer named Lucius Abrams, but his farm is not operational, notes reporter Rachel Scott. Just about everything on this farm has something wrong with it. I feel like I've been left on Gilligan Island. The specific issue that Scott is investigating is that Congress, over the past couple of years, has vowed to give aid to black farmers, but hasn't delivered. She doesn't name the programs, but they are the Market Facilitation Program, which was to offset the effects of Donald Trump's trade war, and then under President Biden, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. It provided billions in financial aid to farmers. And then there was this initiative, which, as you will hear next, was thwarted by whites. In 2021, Congress approved $4 billion in loan forgiveness for farmers of color and a program aimed to address historic discrimination by the USDA, which has acknowledged routinely denying loans to farmers of color. But it was stopped in its tracks, halted by a lawsuit from white farmers who claimed they were being excluded because of their race. To be eligible for this debt relief, uh, you had to be a minority. 
That last voice is Sid Miller, the Texas Secretary of Agriculture, is the only person in the piece whose video and audio quality are subpar. It's a Zoom interview. That's the producer's choice. Miller not only sounds like Boss Hogg, but dresses like him. Big hat, a revolver lapel pin. And that's his choice, as is him posting a picture of Donald Trump behind him on his desk. But even though the semiotics of Sid Miller are almost guaranteed to be repellent to the majority of the ABC News audience, Here's the thing. What Sid Miller has to say is factually accurate. Our U.S. Constitution forbids discrimination, uh, our government from discriminating uh, against a citizen because of their race. You know, all citizens are equal uh, before the law. Miller is right. And all the courts, all five of them in different jurisdictions, were correct to strike down the law as written, which only gave relief to farmers of one racial group. After the Supreme Court ruling in Bostock a couple of years ago, it is clear, a lawyer might say it is a per se violation of Title VII, to discriminate on the basis of race against any American, regardless of his or her race. That decision, the Supreme Court decision, was supported by all the liberal justices on the court, as well as Justices Gorsuch and Roberts. So, to have written a law so vulnerable to a legal challenge that was destined to be brought by desperate farmers who are hurting, even if they are white, that was a misstep, shall we say. And that brings me to my biggest problem with this piece. A political player, Senator Cory Booker, is allowed to frame the failure of a provision he authored as being because of conservatism or a recalcitrant court system. Look, it was what it was. We had a a legal system now dominated by a lot of conservative jurists who would not let that program go forward, and we knew that would put more farmers in peril. But it's not a skewed court or the objections of white farmers who made the law and the Constitution what it is. So Booker and Senator Raphael Warnock rewrote the law. Now relief should be getting to black farmers, but also to all farmers. Farmer Lucius Abrams, who we met, the black farmer whose farm doesn't work, is frustrated. I mean, here we in America. You're going to let lawyers put a, a, a clause in there where we have no recourse? You let the president sign the order, the, the Senate, the Congress pass it, and, and we still can't get no justice. Discrimination against black farmers was a prevalent feature in U.S. history. That's why a class action suit on behalf of farmers was brought in the late 1990s. The Pigford settlement granted over a billion dollars to black farmers. 69% of eligible black farmers got money from the government, an average of $67,000 each. Did it redress all past injustices? Of course not. But it was a billion dollars in total that black farmers actually got. Now, here's how ABC summarizes Pigford v. Glickman, which was at the time the largest civil rights settlement in the history of the United States. It's not the first time black farmers were promised relief they didn't receive. In 1999, black farmers sued the USDA for discrimination in what became known as the Pigford cases. It resulted in a $1.2 billion settlement, but confusion around paperwork and deadlines led to thousands of claims being denied. Uh, Maybe ABC is referring to the fact that 69% of those eligible for some benefit didn't get any. 
The federal government also thought that figure was too low, so Congress authorized another $100 million for farmers who misfiled or missed deadlines originally. Then the Obama Justice Department one-upped Congress, or you could say outdid Congress by an order of magnitude. Obama Secretary of Agriculture, who's now Joe Biden Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack announced $1.25 billion settlement, and that was called Pigford II. Then the Obama White House said, oh, okay, we authorized a billion dollars, but Congress didn't. They went to Congress. They got Congress to actually fund it. So with that funding, with that payment to black farmers, all wrongs were not righted. Discrimination was not undone. I'm not even arguing that the unfair was made fair. But we did have a series of government interventions. We had delivery of lots of money, billions. We had imperfect implementation, the government going back to address those problems, appropriating more funding. Again, I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not even saying it was good enough. It was long, boring, bureaucratic, and delivered some, in dollar terms, lots of money to black farmers who needed it. That all gets reduced to sad music and 20 seconds of description, which in no way would lead the viewer to understand that black farmers ever really got any money, which in fact, the overwhelming majority of black farmers did. And it's not just ABC that frames the issue of one of relentless lies and disappointment without any progress. In 2021, NBC ran a piece about the relief that lost in the courts, and it was headlined, On behalf of white farmers, Trump allies wage legal war against equity. Referring to Trump allies, the piece says, Whites have civil rights too, they say, in a lawsuit filed in federal court in Texas. For black farmers and civil rights group, that's a proposition that defies reality. Defies reality? just is what's in the Constitution. Please don't put a proper defense of constitutional rights on what, quote, Trump allies say. Don't frame a reading of the plain meaning of the Constitution as currently interpreted as defying reality in the eyes of black people and civil rights groups. That NBC article goes on to note that under Trump, the vast and disproportionate majority of trade war-related relief money went to white farmers, about 99.4%, according to one study. I read the study. Yep, that's the figure. 99.4% not going to black farmers. That does seem like an injustice. Except for the fact that according to the latest census of agriculture, The census found farms operated by black farmers were smaller on average and accounted for 0.4% of agricultural products sold. So in other words, the relief granted was in proportion to the amount of relief needed. Now back to our ABC piece. Reporter Rachel Scott does a good job pressing a USDA official on the need for accurate statistics that note the breakdown of relief by race. Good. And then we check back in on Lucius Abrams. Soon after ABC News asked the USDA about Lucius's case, he did receive notice from the department that his debt had been forgiven. Relief he's been waiting on for years. The original bill did pass in March of 2021, so it has been two years. He's been waiting for years, that's true. But the main character used to illustrate a story of persistent historic inequity has been given a government bailout. I guess you could say that it was the news report that lit the fire under the government, but thousands of other farmers, not the subject of sympathetic network investigations complete with emotive piano music, have been lately enjoying relief as well. And yes, some of those farmers aren't black, but all are economically deserving, regardless of race, which is what the Constitution allows. 
And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. They were generous in telling me what their birthdays were. Michelle Pesca is in charge of philanthropy and operations for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening. Thank you.